Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I am Kirk O'Bear. You are, and I am John Birdsall. How are you doing, Kirk? Doing good. Hey, we got a new setup this time, and we're hope we made some improvements in our recording process. This and very, this is very exciting. Yeah, hopefully people can uh, detect the improvements that we've made in our process here. Mostly thanks to, um, I would say, uh, the COVID phenomenon that has brought about uh, some improvements in the. Uh, remote desktop, uh, remote recording technology, and that's what we're using right now. We're actually about uh, 70 miles apart from each other. Can you believe that? Yeah, well, this is um, uh, a remote like cloud solution where apparently we have super high quality. It's much better than Zoom, I've noticed, yeah, um, in terms of sound quality. And uh, so I hope everybody can uh, hear us because we got a lot to say so much oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> well you and want to talk about the chauvin trial i think you wanted to I, do I want to like talk a about, slice I, and dice a dissection of the whole thing i i do i do um because i think once you go down that road the, it just opens up discussions to any number of uh, political issues or economic issues or you know equity issues i mean it's 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 a uh well pandora's box is probably the wrong term but it's it's an incredible um uh view into a lot of issues facing the country all encapsulated in this one two and a half week trial you know i mean wouldn't you agree with that yeah absolutely and it was fascinating to watch especially given you know the fact that i as you are uh have a chosen profession of being a criminal defense lawyer. It, it, um, <clears throat> we kind of saw a little bit of everything that we see in dynamic trials. So, uh, I would recommend, I mean, I know that there was a lot of, um, other aspects of this that the, the whole country was paying attention to, mostly the verdict and whatever the expected verdict was. But you put that aside and it really had, uh, so much going on that was very, I think, instructive perhaps even educational, it should be mandatory viewing in some sort of law school class because there was quality lawyering on both sides, for sure. Um, I, I completely agree with that. I was very impressed with the um, uh, the quality of the lawyers, the obvious level of preparation that they had. Um, that was very impressive, at least from a professional standpoint. The delivery was uh, pretty much flawless in terms of how they presented things. I mean, there's a lot of, like a lot of most trials is fumbling and stumbling and people aren't prepared. And oh, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of a joke and it's kind of ridiculous. And of course you and I try never to do that and operate on this much higher level. But, um, but I think that um, uh, this would be very good for lay people to watch. Like, you know, there's a lot, that's a lot of hours to commit to watching the whole trial. Sure. Now I watched almost all of it, not, you know, <laughs> not live. I'd have, not I'd, some of it. I'd have it on the background, but if I was busy, then I'd watch it at night. So, and, like you're um, cooking meatballs or something like that, and you'd have exactly, the show thing. Exactly, that's exactly correct. And um, uh, what I what I really think people can learn from this is a number of things, and one is um, what what really constitutes proof in a criminal trial. So. Because they can watch 
the experts being introduced and how they have to authenticate documents and how they have to get you know the videos to be properly authenticated and um, that's a very specific legal term but um, uh, and it might sound like oh that's really boring but it's really not it's really kind of a it's 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 kind of a basic thing in all trials civil or criminal where um, they're trying to build as much fairness into the process as possible by restricting what comes into the actual evidence that the jury is to consider. And if it doesn't pass that test, then it's not coming in. And, and so, you know, the whole idea, it just comes down to fairness. And so they're trying to build a fair system of rules that's going to be fairly administered by the judge. And, um, and so, for example, you know, like the, the videos... Well, you can't just take something that's shot by somebody else and just start playing it in the trial. There has to be some basis for it to be there. First, it has to be relevant. Second of all, it has to be introduced by somebody who can say that this is an accurate portrayal of what happened at this particular day. Well, who's better to do that than the person that shot it? Right. And that's why they had. That's why they led. With the protesters, you know, yeah, that's well, not a very the protesters, good point. the the onlookers. You know, John, that that kind of goes back to a very old rule of evidence that um, you know might not seem as significant nowadays because it's pretty obvious what you're looking at when you see a squad cam or a body camera or a, a something videotaped on someone's phone who was present at the scene. But but this has to do with foundation. And you have to, the That's old correct. rule, the rule that still exists, of course, is that you have to show that the document is what it purports to be. And, you know, think back in the 1800s when you'd have some sort of, you know, dying declaration on a cocktail napkin. Well, you'd, you'd have to show that it wasn't something that was fabricated or created for the purpose of litigation. It was something that was... You know, you'd have to say, I was there and I saw so-and-so write this. Or they're self-authenticating things because they're business records or because they're created in the normal course of conduct, such as, you know, what we see in squad car recordings for police officers and things like that. But I don't think that when that rule was originally uh, imagined that that there would be a time in history when we can, uh, in real time, uh with as much accuracy as we can now capture events, both audio and visual as it is. But um, yeah, that was actually a brilliant way to start the case, the prosecution, because some of that testimony was, was very dynamic, very emotional. And um, it, it really packed a punch because it set the groundwork, you know, and I thought another thing that was good about that, the thought that I had as they made that strategic decision to lead with those things is that, you know, a lot of people have heard, plenty about the case over the course of the past year and people have formed their opinions about what they thought happened because everybody's seen stuff on the news or it's been plentiful on um, YouTube and that kind of thing. But to set the stage with actual witnesses actually talking about and laying the foundation for these different recordings that they themselves shot was, it was sort of like, you know, now you're getting it for real. Well, you know? it was a it was a double whammy great move by the prosecution in the sense that they got not only did they immediately go to the heart of the case and get the admission of all of those bystander videos, but they also then 
in the process, and that laid the groundwork for the rest of the stuff they had to do in the case, but in the process, they got some of the most powerful emotional testimony I have ever seen anywhere. I agree. Yes. And and it wasn't just like it was one person and one off or something. There was like, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten of them. I can't even I didn't even remember the number. I think it was maybe yeah. nine. And every single one of them was just like if if they just moved you, you know, it was really impressive. Yeah. Um so then, you know, and but the other thing that people can really I think get a better understanding of is how expert testimony is used in courts. In both civil and criminal cases, and in this case, boy, we just had experts coming out of our ears, right? <laughs> we had, we did, you know, we had, yeah. well, you know, and some people thought that, you know, they was a little overboard. And I even kind of thought that myself as I was like, you know, they're kind of saying the same thing. And, um, uh, but I actually heard several interviews with the uh, two two lead prosecutors, um, Jerry Blackwell and Steve I. I'm going to screw up his name, but um, Schlezel, or uh, I can't, I can't pronounce it. <laughs> Schlezel? Um, really? No, 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 no. That was really bad. So anyway, th- but they, they said that, 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 um, uh, that one could look at it and think, you know, they heard the criticisms about going overboard with experts, you know, this pathologist, this pathologist, this pathologist, but they were like, Hey, you know, we're, we know the odds of trying to try a police officer, mm-hmm. and we're not we're not leaving anything to doubt. So, um, so you know, I mean, I thought that people could not only get into the medical aspects of all this, uh, but um, see, you know, the police process itself, and um, and what I wish, and I what I and I hope everybody can see, and everybody should go look. You should go Google and find out. The very first statement put out by the Minneapolis Police Department on May 25th of 2020 um, and what they said about this whole case. And what they said was, and I'm paraphrasing here, but they said was um, what they say in a lot of news releases. Uh, Yeah, officers responded and suspect was there and um, he had a medical condition and um, he died at the hospital. Mm. (laughs) <laughs> okay. That's 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 the summary of what they said. Yeah. And of course, you know, I mean, so it was just like whitewashing the whole thing. And, from, the, um, from the get-go. And we are back with more legal defense. Yeah. Kirk and John. Even even more. <laughs> and and Chauvin, Chauvin trial breakdown. Yeah. Um, so, uh, well, I don't know. What did you think was the most pertinent part of the trial? Well, um... Let me just back up a little bit because I wanted to pick up on where we left off. Where we were starting to get sure. into the experts, and and I think I can kind of answer your question. You know, going into this thing, I had seen uh, most of the videos that were out there for public consumption, and then you know, as the trial started, there was you know kind of a a fuller, um, longer video that had not been released to the public, and and I saw that. And it really just confirmed what I I thought about the case to begin with. And experts aside, um, you know, all the pathologists and medical things and people talking about training and stuff, it it all came down to one thing for me. It was the, you know, the nine minutes and 27 seconds or however long it was. And the smug look on Derek Chauvin's face as he had his hand in his pocket 
uh, for almost three minutes after, um, you know, after after the death had occurred, you know, or or at least when the seizures were done, you know, that was the thing. So, so what you're saying, I think, is that um, what a lot of people probably thought, which is, what we don't need all this fancy doctor stuff. Uh, okay, all we have to do is play the video. The um, uh, the trial will be over in nine nine minutes and twenty nine seconds, and then we can go deliberate. You know, well, and but 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 here's 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 what I was leading up to is that the that's a very natural impulse for people to think that, even for me or you to think that. But there's lots and lots and lots millions of people in the country, and certainly I'm sure in Minneapolis, that have been raised all their lives. To think, please do no wrong. Please, uh, they don't do intentionally hurt people. They're just trying to protect us, and they're the good guys. And um, and uh, this trial had a very tricky proposition in that regard because um, they, if they just went after him as like big evil police officer, um, uh, and like all the police are bad, they were going to lose probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and so they had to break this down to make sure, as as I'm sure, the, the, Scalise, that's his name, Steve Scalise, um, he he noted in his opening that this is this wasn't a case against the police; it's a case against Derek Chauvin, and um, and that's why they called all those police officers from their own department, including well, including some from not outside experts, but um, including the police chief, which is. The rarest thing I have ever seen mm-hmm. in a police trial. Um, oh yeah, and well, I think that uh, the the point is is that um, they you can't just look at this or hope people are going to reach the same conclusion you do if you're horrified by what you saw in that nine minutes twenty nine seconds because some people won't reach that conclusion. And in fact, during jury deliberations, which I followed very closely. Um, one of the jurors finally came out and talked about that, and he said when they went back, they immediately voted, which is very common, um, and one person still wasn't sure that that knee caused the, was the cause of death. Okay. And, um, and, and so they were right to break this down and make sure they plugged every single hole because, as you know, take that's their what, time. You know, that's something and, that we and, always hope jurors do when you and I have a trial is that – you know, I know that most jurors do, you know, as soon as they walk in the uh, deliberation room, they're like, all right, let's take a vote. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's just to get a sense of where people are. But we do always hope that they will take the time to thoroughly examine and and talk about what are the reasons why uh, you may question your own initial instinctual, you know, conclusion that you might draw. Because... I mean, that is one of the good things, supposedly one of the good things about our justice system is that we do have this process whereby we bring in 12 people that are not trained in the law, not not lawyers, not judges. They're not involved in the charging process. They're supposed to be disinterested in the outcome of the case, although I'll come back to that in just a minute. Um, And then by having people of, you know, hopefully good intelligence and uh, that have paid attention and have you know, uh, been able to absorb the important points that have been made by the evidence, then go and deliberate and defend, either defend their positions or re-examine their positions by the process of talking it out with other people. Now, I say, 
we always hope that jurors are disinterested, and that is one of the things that always happens in the process of selecting a jury. As they used to say in the military, voir dire, I think it's because there were a lot of people from Texas, but voir dire is probably the, uh, you know, it, that's an Americanized way of saying it. I suppose if you really said it properly, it would be like voir dire, something like that. I don't know. <laughs> voir dire. Vardir, uh, the process of questioning jurors as you are picking them. Also, that term's also used if you're going to, um, outside the presence of the jury, co- uh, question the qualifications of a particular expert that can happen in the middle of a trial. And I don't know why we use that term in that case as well. But anyway, you go through so, that uh, process and the judge always starts off with, you know, some of the most obvious questions. Does anybody here have an interest in the outcome of the case, uh, financial or otherwise? So, obviously, if you're someone is suing the business that you are the CEO of, you probably should not be on the jury, right? Or right. if you own stock in the company that it stands to get a windfall of millions of dollars, you shouldn't be on the jury. But <clears throat> I'm wondering... Uh, I wondered, as the trial was commencing, how many people you could find in Minnesota, in that part of Minnesota, that could honestly say they, they did not have some sort of concern about the verdict, right? I mean, that is kind of an interest in the outcome. And I, you know, they talked about this a lot during and after the trial. There was this heavy weight uh, on the people that were deciding this case on you know the impact of the ver- the verdict would have on you know the community and remember they well, brought the national guard in ready to well, put, the, put out the fires that's obviously a huge concern going in but the more surprising thing was the judge did not sequester them for this trial yeah. and well um, he told them only that, <laughs> well okay so let's talk about that because um first of all uh this is obviously a trial that's giving blanket to blanket the coverage, you know, round the clock, you know, just constant analysis um, all over the world, you know, and I, like millions of others, I watched it like, you know, just ravishly. So, um, uh, and he was a great judge, by the way, and I know people who have appeared in front of him. We have a mutual friend actually up there who did some live commentary on some of the local TV stations, but, um, uh, and he's, he's got a reputation as a very fair judge. But I thought that was a big misstep. Mm-hmm. And that really, uh, because there's so much coverage, there's no way that any normal person can avoid hearing about the trial from the media when they leave the courthouse. There's just no way. You know? and, and so this brings up a fiction <laughs> that we like to teach ourselves. And that is, this is the judge, what Kirk um, said a little earlier, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that the judge will give them admonitions. Okay, well, that concludes our our trial for today, and uh, now we'll go home and don't watch any media and don't listen to any t- radio or TV and don't listen to anything about the trial. Okay, have a good night. <laughs> and, and and just like expect I the, wonder, uh, would you be able to, to just do that? Follow would that. you be able well, to do that? Let's just say, let's just say I walk out, I'm on the jury, I walk out, and I really, really, really want to follow the judge's orders. Um, I think it would be almost, I would have to shut off my phone, not use my computer, not watch any TV, um, and just not be a talk hermit. to your friends or family. 
Yeah, and I'm not sure I could do that, and I'm not sure that's reasonable to expect people to do that. So well, that's then, why. Uh, but if I you thought think about the reality th- of sequestration, you know, you're going to put people in a hotel room, and they, you know, what are you going to do in a hotel room when you can't turn the TV on, you can't use your computer, you can't talk, you can't use your phone? I mean, I don't know what the difference really would have been. I think in the the old fashioned way that when things were, you know, the idea of sequestration would be that. Um, people wouldn't be out, you know, investigating the case or coming up with any kind of, you know, I don't know, um, stuff on their own. But this was just media saturation. That's a a fair point, you know. I don't know. It kind of makes me just think about something that I'm sure you have wondered about that lay people really probably don't appreciate is how many presumptions there are in the law about things like that. So we Mm -hmm. presume that jurors are going to follow that. Um, We we supposedly presume the defendant's innocent, but we all know that's a fiction. Nobody right. really thinks that. Well, it's just things um, we say, because if, if the alternative yeah. were true or even suspected, the whole system would break down and cease to right. function. <laughs> that's really what it is. Well, hey, we got to take a break. Welcome back. We have survived the commercials. Oh, wow. <laughs> they were so good, though. I <laughs> bought everything. Awesome. I bought everything. It's coming I tomorrow. I did, too. I, had, I was uh, buying it on my phone, just like clicking all this stuff. You know, like uh, that arthritis medication. That stuff sounds great. You know, <laughs> I'm going to get that uh, that vibrating chair. Yeah. You know, oh, I'm yeah. Gonna, yeah. I, uh, I uh, wonder if the- we if we promote it enough, maybe they'd give us a, you know, a promotional <laughs> sample or something. We could have it right there at the, the Metcalf mansion for our guests. Dare to, dare to dream. Dare to dream, <laughs> Kirk. Uh you know, this this something I'd like to just chat about a little bit is the fact that there was a trial at all. Yeah, and um, and I thought that was uh, well. On one level, it was a no brainer. It was pretty obvious that this had to there had to be criminal charges brought. But um, if we look at, at the seascape of <clears throat> police killings. And how many are actually charged, it's a hugely rare mm-hmm. occurrence, number one. And number two is the ones that are charged um, are often acquitted. Yeah. And so, you know, well, I there, guess prosecutors are rightly skittish about bringing these charges in the first place. There's so. a lot to that to unwrap, <clears throat> actually. So let me just pause and, and address a couple of those points that you just raised. Um, I, I was also surprised that it went to trial in the sense that the the video evidence was so damning. It, it would appear to me that Mr. Chauvin had a strong interest in perhaps resolving this case in some way. On the other hand, I'm not sure how willing the prosecution would be to uh, let, him plead, let him plead to a lesser charge or a cap his time or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you got to have a trial just because you got to have a trial, you know. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying because we see things. We've seen quite a few cases right here in Wisconsin where, you know, on fa- at face value, it would appear to be either something that needs to be prosecuted or at least put before a jury so that, somebody other than the DA's office or the police are making a decision about what the right thing to do is, you know, sort yeah, of like a, yeah, anyway, we, well, had a, I, I, we had a shooting I right here in Wisconsin, in Sheboygan that was somewhat controversial. And it basically was just 
you know, justified. That's yep. it. Nothing, nothing to see here. No problem. He's reaching for a knife. Jacob Blake, right? So, um, well, you know, it did go to trial. And this was a strange thing for me. It's, it's pretty rare that I would root for the prosecution. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're saying. But, um, but I did. On the other hand, I did admire the defense lawyer. Um, I thought he did a, a pretty admirable job um, questioning witnesses. I thought he was very thorough. I thought he was very um, careful about tying in his theme of various, which in, on some levels were kind of nonsense. Like he was trying to, you know, talk about how well he ingested this uh, these pills, and they found some pills in the back of the squad car, and well, you know, and plus Chauvin was. Uh, perhaps reacting to the angry crowd, he liked to call them, yeah. even though they were, you know, and things like, I mean, he, okay, so they were BS defenses in the end, uh, but um, but he did a nice job of trying to make them, you know? Yeah. Um, the one thing I mean, he that's, did, that's which, what they had to work with, right? I mean, you know. Here's, here's the one thing he did that I don't know if you noticed, but I'd like you to chime in on this. During closing arguments... His, which was, his was very lengthy, but he had a lot of ground to cover, so I understand. Um, but he said something towards the end that was um, approximately as follows. He was talking about what the government had to show, um, to show the cause of death. And he said that the government has to prove to you it wasn't, it wasn't the pills, that it wasn't his heart, his enlarged heart, or it wasn't a pre-existing condition. They have to prove, to, which is absolutely not true. Because what they have um, to prove is they have to prove that his actions were a substantial cause of the death. <coughs> okay, part of this has to do with the fact that the definition of that particular version of homicide um, does relate to either being a cause or, or a, and it could be like an indirect cause. It, it's something that is con a contributory factor. And of course they make that the standard because otherwise it would be nearly impossible to get a conviction because of that very argument. But this, this thing where you know, they have to disprove that they have to disprove, et cetera, et cetera. That is, uh, and I've used that argument before in the right type of case, because there is a helpful phrase in the standard jury instruction that talks about proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, you know, and I think uh, listeners that have followed our show with some regularity over the years are probably also familiar with this fact, that it's very hard to define. There is no dictionary definition of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And as much as we try and define it, and of course, defense lawyers, as well as prosecutors, always try to add more context, more words, more ideas to what that actually means. But the spirit behind it is that it's, you know, the jury is really supposed to decide on their own with a little bit of guidance as to what the meaning of that should be. <clears throat> Excuse me. But there is that language that talks about if you can uh, square the evidence consistent with the defendant's innocent, you know, any reasonable hypothesis. So what he was doing is he was going through various reasonable hypotheses and listing them. I've done that before. But you're right. The problem with this case is that it wasn't 
it wasn't that the state had to disprove all of those things. All those things could have been a factor. And yet, if the uh, you know knee on the neck was a substantial uh, factor in bringing about the death, that's all they need to prove. So it's a little weird in this situation just because uh, what what they have to prove is a little different than what they would normally have to prove. I mean, normally yeah. you're talking about you know pure intent. You know, and this was not like a, an intent to kill type case necessarily. You know, um, this was not a first degree intentional premeditated. Right, they didn't have to. Case. Right, they didn't have to show actual intent. They, um, yeah, they had to just show that general intent. Um, yeah, he, he knew what he was doing too. Like he, was, he had, there's a knowledge element to every criminal offense, whether it's you know. You, you were reckless, but you knew you were being reckless, mm-hmm. or you were negligent and you knew you were being negligent, you know, that's that sort of thing. Or you had just flat out intended to do the act. Right. So, um, anyway. As opposed you know, to a strict I, liability offense, I, you know, oftentimes, you remember the best example of a strict liability offense that they teach us in law school speeding. It doesn't matter if you were late, doesn't matter if you were passing somebody, doesn't matter if there was a a uh, zombie running behind you at 60 miles an hour trying to eat your brain, you are not allowed to speed. And if you were, boom, guilty. But there's that's not a crime. And you can't have, um, you know, a, a that type of lack of intent. You know, so another, pure, another and I think this qualifies as strict liability, is um, uh, a detectable amount um, of a controlled substance in your system from marijuana, mm-hmm. even the slightest amount, will get you a drunk driving ticket, even if this, you know, your use had been weeks uh, before and you weren't impaired at all, you still get a drunk driving ticket. Well, yes and no, because that element does not require knowledge. However, there is still an intent requirement in a crime, in a, in a criminal drunk driving case, the state, you know, you could present a defense that the person didn't know they were driving. You could do that, theoretically. <laughs> it's very difficult. I mean, it, that, that actually is contemplated by both the statutes and the jury instructions that, you know, you can act, there is that level of dissociation from reality where the intent is completely vitiated, you know, um, but you'd have to show that the person was unaware of that particular action. Um you know, I, I've had cases where I won on a uh, massive intoxication type defense. One was where um, a gentleman uh, who happened to be of Samoan descent, so he honestly was an angry Samoan, if if you can believe that. Which, by the way, okay. that was a band from the eighties. Do you remember? You know, no, back then. But I would, right. I would have totally gone to see them, though. Yeah, yeah, they were good, but. Uh, He was trying, several police were trying to get him under control, and he had consumed an entire bottle of Slivovitz or something, I don't know what it was, and he was to the point where he was hallucinating uh, massively, and it was very apparent. So what I did is I called every officer that was involved in the incident and uh, asked all of them questions, and the the chaos was such that no one could agree on what happened, and then... (laughs) So, so the lack of agreement combined with the fact that it was pretty clear that this guy didn't know what planet he was on, you know, I won that case, but it was an odd type of situation. Huh. We are back with more 
Riveting conversation from Kirk and R- John. What, it, what exactly is riveting? Is it is it like you're having rivets driven into you, like Rosie the Riveter? I think I think, I think that the if I'm referring to conversation, the conversation is so powerful. It goes through you like a rivet and holds you down and makes you listen whether you want to or not. Right, like a hot, red hot so, rivet, right? Yes. And um, yeah, maybe we could work in Rosie the Riveter. I don't know. I yeah. don't, there's a whole bunch of possibilities. But there are two things that I want to end the show with, two areas that, that are related, but um, uh, we could talk about each for an hour. But the one is... Um, uh, the fact, uh, well, it's about police use of force and the fact that um, the police show up here for a $20 bill. And the second is, what does real police reform look like and do they do cops still need to do, be doing traffic stops? So the first one, the, 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 the use of force by police and this warrior mentality is the problem. And that, that, that mentality has been stoked for the last 150 years. <clears throat> in every department, in every major city, in every small town, um, you know, the fact that everybody carries guns. A lot of police forces around the world, police, police don't carry guns. And, um, you know, and, 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 and maybe it's, that's part of the culture. But then there's also this thing where, you know, um, everybody needs to, you know, get their butts kicked by the police if they're even a little disrespectful or something. And it's just, right. it goes back to a bit of a racist system that this developed, developed out of in the first place as slave patrols in the 1800s and then on through Jim Crow and on and on. But um, we see that in full force when a teenage kid who's a clerk at Cup Foods thinks this is a phony $20 bill, <clears throat> goes out to a car to talk to a guy and says, hey, can you please come in here? He refuses, goes out again, <clears throat> still not coming in, so he calls the police. The police show up for this, quote, crime that probably would have, should have been issued a ticket. I, t- I tell you right now, if you or me did that, we would have been politely treated and using a ticket. But if you watch this trial and watch the parts where the police first approach Void before Chauvin even shows up, they immediately oh, yeah. draw their guns. They immediately well, draw their guns. Let, let me let me ask you about that because um, one of our lawyers that works in our firm—I won't name the lawyer—but uh, she doesn't work in your office, and it is a female. So you can narrow it down, like in your own mind, who we're talking about. I'm I'm really confused. I have no idea who okay. we're talking about. But go ahead. <laughs> All right. Anyway, the other day she um, got some gas. And she's going to listen to the show, and she's going to be thoroughly embarrassed. But anyway, she got some gas and, for whatever reason, forgot to, and I believe her, forgot to pay for the gas. And uh, a couple hours later, you know, the cops are knocking on our door, and they're like, hey, lady, uh, you got some gas and didn't pay for it. And she was like, oh, my God, I had no idea. And and they let her pay for the gas, and they said, "Ah, it happens, you know. Now... If you or I had a $20 bill and we paid for something, and it turned out that it was counterfeit, I think the first reaction would be, oh, you must have gotten this $20 bill from somebody else. Exactly. And, uh, gee, this has been going on. You, sir, are a victim of fraud, as am I. You would get the benefit of the doubt. But when it's, uh, you know, 
a situation like this, it, it doesn't doesn't pan out well, that way. Well, look at look at look at how if you really watched the uh, intricacies of the breakdown by the prosecution, uh, and it's all on video, so it's not like it's something in dispute. Um, if you look at how they handled this, they show up. Floyd's in the car. Um, they approach the car. And they immediately just start yelling and screaming and swearing, and they have their guns out. and um, And he's like, "I'm I'm 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 complying." He completely complies. They you know they get him out of the car. Um, they're uh, being abusive to him verbally. Uh, they're threatening his life by putting a gun at him. And um, and then they finally they get him in handcuffs, and then they drag him over across the street to in front of Cub Foods, and that's when Chauvin arrives, right? And that's when they're trying to get him into the squad over there. And that's what most people see. But what they didn't see was like the immediate reaction Mm -hmm. was, I'm pulling my gun on this dangerous $20 counterfeiter guy, you know? And that's the mentality that needs to go away from. That comes from training, honestly, because I've heard it a hundred times where someone's, the way that officers are trained. So, I, you know, yeah, there are bad cops out there. There are plenty of good cops, too. You know, we all know that. There are as many different personalities in the police force as there are personalities, I suppose. Um, you or I might believe that a, a certain kind of person might gravitate towards that kind of job. And I think that is that has been documented. But putting that aside, the training is... You never know what's going to happen. You must be prepared for anything. You are walking into a hostile environment. You should, officer safety is priority number one. Be on the lookout for this, that, this, that, blah, blah, blah. Always, never turn your back on somebody. Always keep your gun, you know, covered. Don't allow all these things to happen. And it's, you know, you, you put somebody through that type of training. They go out in the field and, yeah, they're skeptical about everything they see. Everybody is a potential bad guy. And, you know, things happen, I suppose, but that's part of the problem, is that the way that we have, it's it's been an evolution, I suppose, over the course of a 150 or 180 years, where the police have sort of um, morphed into uh, something that we've, we've never wanted. We never wanted to have a totalitarian, uh, you know, enforcement of the government breathing down your neck. I mean, that's what our fundamental freedoms were created to to basically prevent that very thing. The police in this situation were acting like the British were in the colonies when people felt that they had no right to go about their own business, no right to be uh, presumed not to be doing anything wrong, right? And... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So here we go with this whole problem. Well, I want to I want to switch into the other topic you had because this is probably the yeah. the most uh, juicy difficult it's thing juicy. For, for me to wrap my head around is your your suggestion that maybe um, police need to stop doing traffic enforcement. What is that? There's, look a, like? there's uh, well, it looks it starts with cameras, which frankly, mm, Big Brother it has its. I know it has its own set of concerns. Um, but, uh, you know, speeders and things like that. And, you know, I guess, you know, drunk driving is a kind of a different story. Um, you know, if they observe somebody that's obviously like weaving all over the road, but, um, you know, just, there was a case back in 19, 
68. <laughs> I, I don't know. Ren versus United States. Oh, right? yeah. W-R-E-N. Yeah. Right. Correct. So what Ren says is that pretextual stops are just fine. So and the police can pull you over if your if your little tag is just like not in the right place on your license plate or, you know, one of your taillights is out or one of your, you know, just little equipment things, they can pull you over. And they do it all the time because they're fishing for drunks and guns and anything else they can find, any, anything to, like, they're trying to create a situation. Oh, did you and, hear the, the uproar a couple of weeks ago about the case in Wisconsin where somebody had challenged a stop based on the uh, air freshener hanging from the rear view mirror? I'm like, that yes. has been the law for ever since there's been law, you know, ever since they made air fresheners, police have been using that as a reason to pull people over forever. You know, I know, and so and so, you know, th- this whole thing about this fishing expedition that they go out every single day and do, and they do it most aggressively in minority communities, that just needs to go away. All right, that so could be a huge before, first before step we without time, even addressing. John, yeah, we're, we got about a minute. Okay, so what what is the alternative then? What what exactly do we do if we eliminate the uh, traffic road cop? What do we do about traffic regulation? Well, what do we do about uh, someone robs a bank and they speed away in a car, and we don't have you know traffic? Oh no, you still no, you still no. They they still go catch the guy. Okay, they just aren't doing these these um, little um, uh, uh, stupid stops where they're just fishing. Okay. They're still going to they're still going to arrest drunk drivers. They're still going to get the fleeing felon, you know, um, or or whatever, uh, but <clears throat> but they don't need to be creating situations, which is exactly what they do when they do these fishing expedition stops. Well, the problem is that that's that has been the case for you know decades at least, where the police do that, and there's you know they don't even try and hide it when it goes up on appeal. Like, well, yes, it was a I was looking for a reason to pull the guy over, and I found one. Ha ha ha! I know, and <laughs> I know. And then they're, that's okay with us, you know, even though it cuts to the very heart of what we're talking about. When when police are looking for a reason, any reason, any reason at all to pull somebody over just to see what they can find. Um, that's the problem. But we're out of time, dude. 